Glad you're at Waypoint today. Welcome. My name is Blair. I'm one of the pastors here. I do some of the teaching, and apparently I'm the one on staff with the lowest IQ because today I have chosen to talk about God and government. And uh, really wise people will tell you that you should avoid religion and politics when you go to family reunions and at work. And these days, that wisdom would be pretty dead on when it comes to politics because we're really divided in our country right now with this. I would even say sharply divided would be a good way to do it. It just didn't rhyme as well for the title. Um, but that's showing up everywhere. And here's, um, here's one of the motivations for why uh, we're doing this little mini-series. I'm convinced uh, that some of that uh, divisiveness is actually working its way into the church. And it's threatening um, the very... Uh, nature of who we are. It's robbing us of some characteristics that God says, this is who you are as a church. So I, w- I want to get that um, right out in the open this morning. I want to start there. Uh, Paul is writing to a small church in Ephesians. And in chapter 4, he describes what he wants this little church to become. We're the church, and so we can, we can go, hey, that's what he's looking for from us too. He says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This idea that in in the Spirit of God, we would have a sense of unity that's deep, that would create a bond of peace between us. Throughout the Scriptures, the New Testament, this idea is going to pop up over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, Paul actually says, be perfectly united with each other. Like, wow, how how do you do that? perfectly, but that's, um, that's not the only scripture. I could, we could go on and on because it's throughout the text that we're called to this idea that in Jesus, choosing to follow him pro- provides a sense of unity for us that creates peace and that is helpful for our nation. Now, um, the question that almost instantly arises is how much do we have to agree on, right? To be perfectly united, how do I pull that off? Do we have to agree on everything? Because if we have to agree on everything, this is a pipe dream and we're wasting our time. If we have to agree on politics, how are we possibly going to do that? And it's a fair question to ask because when you look at our country right now, we are seriously messed up. I don't know if you'll recognize the story. I don't know if you'll recognize the name. Uh, Gail McCormick is 73 years old, married 22 years. Retired corrections worker who's in California found out that her husband voted for Donald Trump and made a decision. She decided she would divorce him, and the primary reason she cited was because of how he voted. You, you might think that's extreme, that's odd. It's not. Reuters did some polling. During the last election time, they found that 39% of people in our country were reporting sharp disagreements between family and friends. These are not just strangers. These are people that you're close to and you're having sharp divisions. 16% of them said they'd cut off ties with a friend or a family member because of their political position. It was shocking to me to see only 17% cut off social media, but again, this is for friends and families. These were people that you want to keep up with, know what's going on in their lives, and you just cut it off. 
And you said, I don't want to have that be around me. That, that's the kind of division that we've got where real relationships and families and friends are being damaged. And I think part of this comes from the understanding that I want you to agree with everything that I think. And if you don't, I'm not sure that we can be connected. Now, uh, sadly, I will tell you, I think that thinking is making its way into the church. And I can say that um, with some personal experience. Uh, several months back after the election was over, um, had somebody sit down with me who's been at Waypoint for a long time. They've uh, maybe five or six years. And they met with me and they, um, they asked that I would start tailoring my messages on the weekend uh, towards some very specific political agendas. And they had scripture as to why I should back that agenda, what I should be saying, how I should be saying it. And they even wanted to know why I hadn't said anything yet. Why have you remained quiet on these key issues? And I just kind of explained to them that I think the mission of the church is not a political one. I, I think our mission is grand uh, by design and it's intended to be one of the most important things that we could do to talk about Jesus and to muddle that with anything else I wouldn't do. And I, I would just make that choice not to do that. And uh, sadly for me, uh, that, that conversation ended, it went well. But, but um, it wasn't long after that, they, they left Waypoint, they've not been back and they've not talked to me again. And uh, that kind of stuff is really disappointing to me. Whether, see, whether you like this or not, here's the truth. There are Democrats at Waypoint who love Jesus. There are Republicans at Waypoint who love Jesus. There's independents here. Um, there's even some others, um, the libertarians. I've met a few of you. There's a few of you who have no idea what you believe. Like, you're a little scary to me, but it's okay because I still think you love Jesus. And here's, here's what I figured out. There's a whole bunch of people here who love Jesus who are trying to figure out how to live their life in a God-honoring way, and they've come to different conclusions They've come to different conclusions on some pretty important things, but they've come to some different conclusions honestly. You know how people arrive at these different conclusions? They've decided that what they believe is right. People make decisions, spiritual decisions, political decisions based on what they think is right, and as soon as they do that, then there's other things that are wrong to them. That's natural, that's normal. Well, how in the world do we find unity when that's a natural, normal process and people are having those kind of discussions and we have such diversity here? How do we pull that off? Well, um, there's, there's one way. See, when Paul referenced this idea that we would have unity in the spirit and a bond of peace, he wasn't referring to this idea that we would agree on everything. He was saying, listen, I think we can find some big ideas to agree on at the center of who we are, at the core of who we are, that hold us together. And all this other stuff that we disagree on, we can still disagree, but it won't destroy us. And I want to tell you, I've heard this in the church. It's almost to a point where it would destroy us because I've heard people say, and they're talking about their political position, that somebody who doesn't agree with me on this I'm not even sure if they can be a Christian if they don't. And that's uh, taking this idea 
that you basically have to agree with everything that I think, otherwise you might not even be in relationship with God. Uh, it's why, um, it's part of the reason I wanna talk about this today. Be because here's what I believe. I believe the church is the hope of the world. It was organized by God to be his messenger to a world, that people would see the way we live, the way we act, to see our actions in the world, and they would understand what God was like because of how we were together, and that is at risk. The church was meant to be a leader. That's God's idea. We were meant to lead in society, to show people what's good, right, and true in our lives and the way we are as a community. That's, that's God's idea. And you can read all kinds of articles right now about how the church has lost its influence in our culture. And one of the reasons, it's not all, but one of them is this. We have, we have put our politics ahead of this unifying thing that God wants to do in our lives, and we've allowed it to divide us and mess with us. So I wanna find a way to kinda tackle this today. Uh, before I do that, I thought I would just um, say this. I think there is a distinction between religion and God. I think religion is man-made rules and guidelines that people put in place and say, you have to do to be right. And, um, and so when you, when you go and talk about religion, I think you mess stuff up. I think it's far easier to talk about God. And I think there's a difference between government and politics. Government are the systems of order that God puts in place, and politics are the policies and the power that you need to enact that kind of stuff that people wrestle with. And so um, they're, really, they're really kind of different. And I think that's helped me as I've kind of walked my way through this. It's kind of funny. Um, most of my Democrat friends think I'm a Republican. Most of my Republican friends think I'm a Democrat, and it's because one of the primary things I believe is that both parties value politics. They're more concerned about how they get their power and hold on to their power than anything else, so I don't find myself agreeing with everything on, with any of them. I just think they're power hungry. So I'm, I'm just kind of revealing my hand. That's where I'm at. And, the, and, and so I, I don't have a political agenda to push because I'm really convinced that the church is the best hope for things. But there is a political side to our world, and it's not wrong to be involved in it. So the question is, how do we do this? How can we find a way through this, uh, these disagreements that we have and still end up with unity and a bond of peace? I was doing a lot of reading, getting ready for this, and I was surprised. I, uh, I did some reading about what our founding fathers thought. I think they were some of the most brilliant people. They studied history. They studied governments in history. They also studied the scriptures closely when they formed the type of government they formed. And they had some opinions. I kind of wrote them down. Uh, they were all in agreement on some stuff that they gave warnings on. I just thought it was fascinating. And I want to read you a few because I think it illustrates how we've kind of stepped in it. Um, here's one. Alexander Hamilton. Nothing could be more ill-judged than that intolerant spirit which has at all times characterized political parties. It's a, it's a warning not to get so involved in your political party that you end up with this intolerant spirit. Uh, John Adams, there is nothing I dread so much 
as the division of the republic into two great parties, each arranged under its leader and concerting measures organizing stuff in opposition to each other. Thus, in my humble apprehension, is to be dreaded as the greatest political evil under our Constitution. Sound a little like where we're at right now? This guy wasn't even a follower of Jesus. Look at what he said. I've never considered a difference of opinion in politics and religion and philosophy as a cause for withdrawing from a friend, Thomas Jefferson. He had some stuff to say about Christianity we'll talk about next week. Um, he was a friend and a foe at the same time, kind of a weird mix. The last one, united we stand, divided we fall. Let us not split into factions which must destroy that, ver that union upon which our existence hangs. And he was talking about our nation, but I honestly believe that we're at a place that we could destroy the church, the very thing that we need to exist that brings hope, the message of Jesus to the world is at stake. And so I, I hope that as we get into this, um, some things will make sense. What I'm gonna try to do is find some big ideas that we can all rally around, that we can all get behind and say, we can have unity on that. We're not gonna agree still, but we can have unity on these few things. Um, I, I think that's gonna be difficult to do because even while I try to do that, there's gonna be politics in the mix. Pe that's what people are gonna hear. Let me give you an example. Uh, the first principle that I wanna talk about today is a simple statement. I believe God is pro-government. Now, here, here's the problem. As soon as I say that, I know, because I have lots of uh, friends, some, some people are going, oh, so you're a big government guy, right? You, you against limited government? I, I didn't say that. What I said, was God is pro-government, and I'm convinced it's a principle. I'm convinced I can take you to the scriptures and show you that that idea is something God gets behind. Now, here's, here's the thing about the scriptures. In some cases, what you read in the scripture, it's just true. What it says is true for all times. It doesn't care about context. It doesn't care about culture. It's just true. Take for murder, for instance. God says, don't do it. I don't care what the context is. I don't care what your culture is. Don't cross this line. But there are other truths that are found in the scriptures that are embedded in a context and in a culture. And you have to understand those so that you can get the essence of the truth. You can take that out of the context and culture and repack it in your context and culture. That it doesn't have to be the same thing. So you take something that's true, true, and you say, I'll just do it however I want to. It's a disaster. You take a principle and say you have to do it exactly the way you read it in the scriptures, that's a disaster. What we're going to try to find is a principle that says God is pro-government. And I, I, I think I can do that for you, but I want you to hang with me, okay? We're going to go all the way back. We're going to start. We'll get to some scripture here in a little bit. Uh, but I want you to note uh, that God assigned a leader for the nation of Israel to leave. Egypt. He didn't have to. He could have said, okay, I'm freezing Egypt in place. Everybody run for the hills, scatter, zigzag, right? They'll never get you. And out they all go. But that's not how God did it. He brought a leader to them. He, he gave instructions through. That nation followed him. And you, you can follow the progression. He does it through Moses. He does that through Aaron. And then you get to the book of Judges. And all of a sudden, the language changes a little bit. 
And um, God becomes identified as the king of Israel. He still speaks through a prophets. He speaks through judges, people who were appointed positions. But he gives direction. He gives instruction. He gives wisdom, boundaries. And those people communicate that this is from God and God is your leader and he wants you to follow this sort of stuff. And people do. Why? Why do you see, why do you see this starting to unfold this way? Here, here's what I would argue for you. I'm convinced that God has a couple values and so it causes him um, to respond with governing. Uh, one, God values leadership. He thinks um, that somebody should be leading and he wants to be that person. He wants to be the one who's in charge. But you're about to see he'll accept that people will take leadership as, from a nation in different ways. That he can still influence that. Um, and also, I think God values community. We were built, made, to be in community with each other. And as soon as you do that, there have to be shared values. There has to be accountability for those shared values. There has to be all of that. And here's the deal. The way for those two things to happen, God designed the idea of governing, government, because he loves order. He loves order over disorder. And because of that, he has structured things to work under governing principles. Somebody's going to help put laws and rules in place, hold the community to that, and make those things function and happen. For the sake of community, you need leadership. And so... God has governing. Now listen, we find that it's a principle because the type of governing keeps changing. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6, we find uh, that the people come to Samuel, who is the prophet that God has been speaking through, leading through. He's the nation's king. And they come to Samuel and they say, listen, um, in verse 6, Give us a king to lead us. We want a human king now. We want somebody that we can see, somebody that we can yell at, somebody that we can touch. We want a human king. We don't want God to be our king anymore. And um, Samuel is hurt by this. And God says, no, 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 no. In the next verse, he says, they are rejecting me as their king, not you. So God's using this language where he's like, I have been the governing authority over this nation. I've been setting the boundaries, I've been setting the rule, I've been guiding this group. But now you want a different king. And here's what happens. He says to Samuel, warn these people what's coming to them. He says that in verse nine, and in verse 10 through 18, he starts listing off all the stuff that's gonna happen. He's gonna take your sons to war. He's gonna take your daughter to marry. He's gonna take your best fields. He's gonna take your best livestock. This guy is not going to be good for you. Are you sure you want to do this? And the people say, oh, we know. We want a king. And you know what God does? He supports the idea. Seems odd, right? The people are about to get a worse kind of situation. It's going to be bad, but he supports the idea. And we actually see in Proverbs chapter 21, um, God says this about a king. It says, uh, this is a book of wisdom. He said, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. God looked at that and said, I can work with that system. 
I can work with that system of order. You've got a king, I'll find a way to direct his heart. I'll, I'll find a way to move that along. And so once again, you see the system changing, but God's still endorsing this idea that governing is important, of value. He continues to do that in the scriptures when it changes again. Um, in a very famous section of scripture about government, in Romans chapter 13, which, by the way, I think has been widely misunderstood. We're going to try and mess with that a little bit. Um, Paul is writing, and governing comes up again. And he says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There it is again. I'm, I'm pro-governing. I want government. And then he says some, some really hard things here. He says, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And then it flips it around. He says the exact same thing. I didn't put it on the screen. The authority that exists has been established by God. He says those two things to make it as clear as a bell. And uh, people have looked at this, and they've said, wow, I guess that means that God has established every authority, and they can do no wrong. Whatever an authority says goes this, this would have been really hard for the people that he just wrote this to to choke down. He's writing to the church in Rome. It's the center of the Roman Empire. 50% slaves, abusive, all kinds of stuff going on, absolutely opposed to God. And they're reading this and going, God's established their authority? I, I don't understand. Why, how could this happen? Rome? They're horrible. I mean, move that into modern day. Is God establishing North Korea, China, Russia, all authority? You just look back just a little ways. Did God establish Mussolini and Hitler? Is that what he had in mind here? And you look at this kind of stuff, and you can start coming to some pretty disturbing conclusions. That whatever the authority is, you bow to it. But here's the problem. There's a context and a culture going on here that you have to pay attention to. In Romans chapter 12, Paul just got done talking about how uh, sometimes people are hurt and they're damaged by another person and they seek revenge. Now, now listen, just think about this in our context in our world right now. Think about all the people, the families of those who've lost somebody in a suicide bombing or a terrorist attack in the last year. And the people in those families decide that in order for me to feel okay, I've got to get vengeance and retribution. So I'm going to go out and take it until I feel better. And then what happens when those people that they're taking their vengeance and retribution on say, in order for me to feel better, I've got to take my vengeance and retribution. It turns into chaos. It turns into utter chaos. And Paul was saying, listen, I've, I've formed even bad government, God says, to protect from this kind of insanity because you don't want to be in a place where there's disorder. I can tell you right now, there are places in our world where there is no law, no order, nobody protecting a governing community, and not one of you would want to live there. The idea is your government is put in place to protect you from things that are bad, and that's God's intention. But here's what's happened. 
We've said you have to do whatever they say, period. But I want you to know this. This is fascinating. Paul is approached by Nero just a short time later. And he's going to be asked to bow a knee to Nero and declare Nero as God. Nero's the governing authority. Paul just wrote this kind of stuff. Should he say yes or should he say no? He said no. He, he said no. But people have read this and said, whatever that authority says, you have to do it. In fact, there are uh, very well-known Christian leaders who have made the statement um, that the colonists of the day in the early revolutionary time were disobedient to God because they didn't yield themselves to the king and our nation was founded in disobedience and it's dishonoring to God based on what they see in Romans 13. Here's, here's, what, I, um, here's what I think. I, I think the founders of our nation understood Romans 13 really well. I, I think they understand it better than we do sometimes. Uh, these guys had really done their research. Maybe you don't know this. But they never intended to leave England. They, they were negotiating for a long period of time to stay a colony, and they were negotiating with Parliament just to change a few things so that they could remain a colony. And when the Parliament didn't like how the negotiations were going, they sent some redcoats over in April of 1775. In April of 1775, at Concord and Lexington, uh, our, our troops, the militias there, defended themselves because they had come to kill them. And maybe what you didn't know is that in that same year, September of 1775, another letter was dispatched and sent to England directly to the king because the colonists believed that the people in parliament were the ones who were causing the problem. We actually have that letter still. We can see what they said. I want you to see part of it here. Um, they said, listen, we think the ministers are the ones who are causing these difficulty. We were compelled to do this and to come to our own defense. We were, we're not rebelling. We're still your faithful colonists. We're trying to find a way to get through this distress. Look how the letter ends. It's fascinating to me. This letter ends by saying, we hope you enjoy a long and prosperous reign. We hope your descendants govern. We're, you're in our sincere prayers. These guys were not in rebellion. They understood that God had put governing authorities in place. And they were trying to negotiate with them. But here's what happened. King George refused to even look at this letter. And what he did instead was he sent more troops to the U.S. And the next year, they drafted the Declaration of Independence. They didn't call it the Revolutionary War. It was the War of Independence, where we had tried, we have tried diligently to work this out with our governing authority. But when you came to kill us, we defended ourselves, and now we will defend ourselves. How could they do that? In light of Romans 13.1, how could they do that? Because there's more to Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 4, gives another principle. It's another idea that's packed in there that we have to unpack and understand. This will all come together and make sense eventually. It says in verse 4, For the one in authority 
is God's servant for your good. He goes on to talk about when you choose to do wrong, they can punish you, they can stop you. It, it harkens back to the, the chapter 12, where when you decide to go out and harm another person, the government will step in and end it so it doesn't keep going on. But this idea that the government would do something for your good was a principle that the colonists rallied around. They were like, we want you to do what's right and what's good, and when you came to kill us, you're out of bounds. You're out of bounds now, and we're going to defend ourselves. Uh, but they never called for rebellion. Paul, when he was asked to bow his knee to Nero, said, no, I won't do this. And his head was cut off for that. But not once did he call for rebellion. He just opposed the authority in a respectful way. I will not honor you as the God that you think you are. I'm not going there. So there has to be a place where we can find some disrespectful or some respectful opposition to our government. And I think it's found in this principle that, that you're looking for your government to do what's good. This is a slippery slope because it's, what could happen is you can say, well, I've decided that they're not doing for my good, so I'm going to oppose them. But how you do it becomes important. And how you see other people doing it becomes important. Um, here's, here's the idea. I'm, I'm going to steal this straight up from Andy Stanley because I don't think I can say it any better. Um, wow. Don't you hate it when you go blank right when you're going to say something important? We want to do what's, uh, we do what's best for people because that's best. We argue for what's best for people because that's best. We want to do good. We want our government to do good. And here's the idea behind it. When somebody has an opinion that they've determined is what's right, do you understand that they've taken that position because they think that's what's best for people? They think it would be good for the government to have that kind of, of output. Now, now here's the thing. Both order and the idea that we want good that's in the form of best for people are two things that God teaches his principles in the scriptures that we can all rally around. We can all get behind that. And when we have a disagreement with somebody, we can think to ourselves, at least they're looking for order. It's, I don't disagree with the order that they want, but at least they're looking for order and not chaos and not disorder. That's something that we can agree on. I believe when they, when they have that argument that they want the best. I don't agree with their best. Listen, Tracy and I, um, 20-some years, we raised kids. And we had serious disagreement about how to raise those kids. And so we would argue about that. But I can tell you what never happened. Not once. Not once did I look at her and think, I think she's evil. That's why she's wanting to do this. She doesn't really love our kids. She just wants to do this instead. Never thought that. I thought she was making a mistake, but I always knew that she wanted the best. Do you understand how that changes things if you get into an argument with somebody, instead of counting them out and understanding that we have to agree on everything, which we can't, that if you could just simply say, I think you're making that argument because you want what's best. I disagree with you completely, and here's what I think. 
But instead, what's devolved into our country and is now kind of coming into our churches is we look at each other and say, you're an idiot. You're a moron. We use labels um, like, oh, you're with Odumo, or you're a Trump-tard. And they have no business being in our churches, being on our tongues. We are destroying the very unity that God will use to show the world that we're different. So maybe it's as simple as understanding that there are some big principles out there. God, God believes in order. And when you propose the things that you're proposing, you believe what you believe, you're arguing for an ordered world that God would back. And when somebody disagrees with you, you can hear them out and you can disagree, but you can still remain friends. And the same can happen because you believe they want the best for people just like you do. Listen, that might be hard for people who are outside the church, but the benefit of the doubt ought to be something that we can pull off with each other because who we are is at stake. We're at risk of losing the unity in Christ, the bond of peace that we would have over these disagreements. And we will undermine the very message that we intend to carry to the world. Are you willing to consider just making those two simple adjustments of finding that basis for unity and peace with each other? Let me pray with you. God, this, um, this stuff is difficult. I understand that. But I think you've called the church to be something great. I think you want it to be a leader in this world. And this is something that we can do that's different than the world that we live in right now. We could display a sense of peace and unity with each other even when we disagree. That we could be in sharp disagreement on the policies and the ideas, but still find a way to love each other because of our commonness in you, our commonness in wanting to see order take place, our commonness in wanting to see the best good thing happen. God, will you grow our hearts in this area? I know when I was a young man, I made so many mistakes on this, and I've damaged a lot of friendships. God, will you help us realize that it's not worth the cost that it brings to our church, to your church. We ask, ask for your wisdom as we, take tep, as we take steps towards each other. In Jesus' name, amen.